to their class through that door over there. Shout out to our audio guys. Thanks for all your trouble making things work. Thank you for your patience. Um, what's this mean? Okay. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open it to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll read the first two verses. is God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You know those thrill seekers who go up on a 300-foot bridge, tie a bungee cord to their ankle, and jump off? What do you think is more important to them? The color of their shirt or how strong the strap is tied to their ankle. The color of their shirt has nothing to do with their salvation. The strength of the cord on their ankle has everything to do with their salvation. Peter is writing to people for whom life feels like a free fall. In chapter 4, he says you're under a fiery trial. It's hot. It's hard. It's horrendous. And where does Peter direct their attention in this supposed freefall? To God's invincible grace. He's showing them, in a sense, this. It's one thing to experience becoming a Christian, coming to faith. What often happens? You're exposed to the gospel. You read, you study, you think, you talk. Maybe you make some mini decisions, some little steps, commitments, and then finally you embrace Jesus. It feels like you're in control of the process. Fine. Invincible grace is what is going on in the heavenlies behind what you're experiencing, and it is God bringing you into relationship with himself. And what makes this strap that holds us in the invincible grace of God so strong, so sturdy for you, for me, for the believers in this region, modern-day Turkey, what makes it so strong? God himself. God himself. He secured you. He'll never let you go. Grace is invincible. It's like the Eiffel Tower being assaulted by a butterfly. That's how strong the grace of God is. This word elect, this is what we're going to focus on. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. This word tells you that if you belong to Jesus, you are the work of God from eternity into eternity. So what is this word, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God? 
let's say three things about this invincible grace that this word is really all about. Number one, God initiates your salvation as proof of his, his invincible grace. Number two, he accomplishes your salvation as proof of his invincible grace. And number three, he will finish your salvation as an outworking of his invincible grace. Three things. Number one, long handout in the uh, bulletin will probably help you to follow along. Number one, God initiates your salvation. That is clear from at least three, three sources. Number one, the use of the words in the Bible. If you've experienced invisible grace, you have a new name. You are elect, according to the foreknowledge of God. The word elect means to pick out from among alternatives. This tie I'm wearing is elect. Uh, earlier this morning, I went into my closet, and there on a coat hanger were 13. I counted them. 13 ties. I chose this one. Didn't choose 12 others. I chose this one and put it around my neck. Select, selected from among different alternatives. You see the same concept, sometimes the word is, is translated in the Bible, chosen. We read the word predestined, for new, called, purposed, ordained. All of these things where God is the one acting, making you his beloved. He set his love upon you. That's why Peter ends these verses by saying, Grace and peace are multiplied to you. That's what the elect get. Grace, peace without measure. That's kind of last week's sermon. So that God initiates your salvation is not only evident from the words you use, secondly, it's evident from your need. God must initiate your salvation because in our natural born state, we have no desire for God. And what we desire is life without God. We have no innate, natural desire for God. What we do desire is no God. The Bible calls this spiritual death. Think of it as simply being unconscious to what's going on in your surroundings. 60 miles an hour, 55 miles an hour on the beltway, you're asleep at the wheel. That's really perilous. That's spiritual death, being unaware, unconscious of spiritual things. And because we have no desire for God, we will never will to move towards God. We're not able, we're incapable. Peter goes on to say in verse 3, look at verse 3 of the text, he caused us to be born again. Of course, we're dead. <laughs> That means if God did not first come to you and me, we would never believe the gospel. He has to awaken us, get us out of this stupor, this asleep at the wheel. The Apostle John put it this way in John 1.12. But as many as received him, from a human perspective, that's what we're to do, receive Christ. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. From a human perspective, we're to believe and receive Christ. We become children of God, but not because we did that. We become children of God, according to John, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We're born of God, and so we receive and believe. This sets up Jesus' comment a little bit later in John, John 3 to Nicodemus. He said to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. 
God must first cause our regeneration, enliven us spiritually, because we're not merely, we're not naturally merely sick, we're not impaired, we're not mostly broken, we're dead. Moses brings this out at the end of Israel's wanderings in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. He says to the people of God, yet to this day, God has not given you a heart to know, eyes to see, or ears to hear. How will Israel, how will anybody ever have a heart to know God, eyes to see him, or ears to hear him? How will they ever know, according to that verse? God has to give it. If you know the Lord, love the Lord, hear the Lord, see the Lord, he's given you that heart. Paul's variation is Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You've probably heard me say this before. Spiritual death means that just as a physically dead person has no appetite for food, a spiritually dead person has no appetite for God. And this explains why most of us would say we do have so little interest in God and His glory. <laughs> I was raised in the church. I didn't have any interest in God and His glory. I hadn't been made alive yet. I was around religious things. I used the prayer book of Thomas Cramner, a capable theologian, for 18 years of my life. And it just went right over my head. I wasn't alive. I didn't have a heart to know, eyes to see, or ears to hear. And you may be wondering, where in the world does all this come from? It comes from the Garden of Eden, where God threatened Adam and Eve take every tree in the entire universe, just don't eat from that one. And and God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. And they inexplicably, they did. And what that ushered in was the eventuality of their physical death and the immediacy of their spiritual death. Think of it this way. Spiritual death is having no spiritual receptors. So years ago, I got into my car, turned on the radio, Static. I looked up on the dashboard. This is in the days when there were real antennas on your cars. Someone had come along and ripped the antenna off my car. In reality, the airways around me were filled with music. There was no antenna to catch the music. Paul describes it this way. 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.14. A natural man... That's me, you, the way we were born, does not accept the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. That is expressing ability, not permission. Because they're spiritually praised. Translated, there's no antennas on his heart. And beloved, that means that there's nothing in me disposing me or predisposing me to move towards God Everything in me disposes me to move away from God. And if I happen to be interested in spirituality, I will probably fashion a God according to my own liking. Paul was brutally honest in Romans 3 when he said this, there's none who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Then he gets at the organic cause of this in Romans 8. The mind set on the flesh is neutral towards God hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Again, uh, ability, not permission. Why is the mind set on the flesh death? There's no desire to move towards God. 
So we're making the point that invincible grace is that way because God initiates our salvation, and that's evident from, thirdly, God's heart of love. God initiates salvation with sinners because he loves them. He wants them. He wants you to know him and to savor his glory and to be transformed by his beauty. That's why. Ephesians 1. In love he predestined us to adoption to himself. 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. Jesus said to his own beloved apostles, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Why did he choose them? He loved them. This should bring great comfort and encouragement and confidence to your heart. Paul himself understood this personally. Look at the quote from Galatians 1.15. But when God had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, Paul isn't making any decisions for Jesus here. He understands, and later, right, that's from all eternity God sets us apart. Even from my mother's womb, God set me apart. He called me through his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me. It pleases God to reveal his son to us because he loves you. So the Bible says repeatedly, we are saved by God's sovereign choice for his glory. And therefore, nothing can frustrate his purpose to save those that he's going to save. Think about Deuteronomy 7. The Lord has chosen you, he says to Israel, to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples in the face of the earth. You're not a Christian because you're smart. You're not a Christian because you're attractive. You're not a Christian because you're ambitious. You're not a Christian because you're rich. You're not a Christian because you're a Democrat or Republican. You're a Christian because God made you his possession in spite of you. I can say that with a smile on my face because it's about God. I don't have anything to boast about. Paul says in Ephesians 1, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So before the world was made, the Father's eyeing his son, Jesus Christ, and he's giving his son a people that in time will be saved through Jesus. And it's all what God is doing in his son, for his son, by his son. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Love the way Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 1. God saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. He called us to faith according to his purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. I have a number of verses here that you can see on your handout. Jesus said in Matthew 11, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows God. You tell me why. There's no desire. Absent desire, you never will to know God. You'll never move towards God. No one except those to whom the Son wills reveal Him. If you know Jesus, you're walking with Christ, God has willed that. He's brought that to pass. John 5, 21, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He wishes. Now let's move through those other verses to this question you may be wondering. Well, Mike, if I wasn't elect, could I be saved? You might be wondering that. Who is this salvation for exactly? Answer, everybody. Anybody can be saved. You may have heard of the verse John 3, 16. For God loved the world. And gave his son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Are you a whosoever? Uh Uh-huh. 
Is your neighbor? Uh Uh-huh. Is every beating heart in this universe right now? Yes. There are whosoever. They're the ones for whom God has given his son, Jesus, to be saved. So as far as we're concerned, anyone can become a Christian. That's why Jesus commanded us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The world, Gentiles, not just Jews, is the theater of God's invincible grace breaking through into dead hearts. Now, it's interesting. I quoted the verse from Matthew 11 where Jesus says, No one knows the Father but the Son and all those to whom he wills to reveal him. Several verses later, Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Theologians call that the free offer of the gospel a most sincere pleading by Jesus that you come to him and be saved. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. You have a verse up above of talking about God's sovereign electing grace. Several verses later, a sincere pleading of Jesus to you to be saved. Paul does the same thing in Athens at Mars Hill. He says, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. As far as we're concerned, God wants everybody to repent and know his son. That is, in fact, the promise of Romans 10. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have I confused you? Okay, fair enough. Some of you are confused. You don't have to raise your hand. Because here's what you heard me say. You you heard me say apparently two contradictory things. One, I have... Because I'm dead in sin, I have no ability to move towards God. I can do nothing about it, as it were. Have I said that accurately? We're dead in sin? Have I made that clear? Do we need to go back and do that first part of the sermon? No, we have. We're dead in sin. As much appetite for God as a dead man has for food. I've said that. And I've said Jesus is calling people to come to him. How do you put those two things together? How do you make sense of that? Is this a bunch of gobbledygook? Is the Bible unclear? It is not. Here's what helps me. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of the gospel, and the doctrine of evangelism are all answering three different questions. The doctrine of election is answering the question, why did I become a Christian? Answer, when I was dead, he made me alive. God did this. Why am I a Christian and not somebody else? God. The doctrine of election answers the question, why did I become a Christian? It's only for me. I don't use the doctrine of election to think about other people. It answers the question, why I'm a Christian. Thank you, God. This is stunning. The doctrine of the gospel answers the question, how does anyone become a Christian? How? They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they are saved. And the doctrine of evangelism answers the question, who is the gospel for? Who can become a Christian? Everyone in the world. That's as far as we're concerned Jesus will save through our witness and testimony everyone in the world. Is that helpful? Are you a little less confused? Number two, God's invincible grace. What makes it the bungee cord that holds us fast in the face of trials, difficulty? God accomplishes your salvation. How? He changes you on the inside. So let's go back to my car radio. I get in the car, turn on the knob, nothing, not even static, nothing. What do I have? I got a dead battery. There's no life 
there's no power coming from the battery to the antennas. No matter how good the antenna is, if the battery's dead, I'm dead. Invincible grace is God in love takes out the dead battery of your heart. He gives you a new heart, as Marty read from Ezekiel 36 earlier. He takes out that dead heart. He gives you a new heart, and he gives you antennas, faith, to hear the gospel. It's all of God. The Spirit creates in you both the desire from this new heart and the ability to trust Jesus. See, for a lot of our lives, we're channel surfing, station surfing on the radio. NPR, talk radio, sports, weather, traffic, whatever. And then one day, you hear the gospel and you stop turning. And the Holy Spirit gives you ears to hear the value of the life and death of Jesus. He tunes your heart, as it were, to hear his grace. And you hear the gospel and you go, I need that man, that man, that man. Jesus is the answer to the need for cleansing my soul of its filth and the righteousness without which I will never stand in the presence of a holy God. That man is the answer. That's the gospel. God in love gives us Jesus. His perfect life is all you need to make a claim on the holy presence of God. And his cross satisfies divine justice that your sins are paid for. The Holy Spirit goes, he's the guy, and he enables you to embrace Jesus and give yourself to Jesus. That's not complicated. This comes through the Word of God. Later on in 1 Peter 1, Peter will tell us, you've been born again, not with seed which is imperishable, but through the imperishable seed of the Word of God. James 1.18, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth through the Word of truth. And again, Romans 10.17, faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. This is not a point that's popular among American Christians, but the fact is the Bible teaches he first makes us alive, and then he gives us faith. God's grace is invincible because it accomplishes what it sets out to do. It doesn't make salvation merely possible. It accomplishes it. I think this comes out in Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. When did he make you alive with Christ? When you were dead. That's grace. That's invincible grace. That's sovereign grace. That's electing grace. That's predestining grace. You're dead, he makes you alive. Which is just really helpful because you don't have to pressure yourself to believe. Sometimes you feel like, I want to believe I can't write. God will give you the faith. God wants to give you the faith. God will give you the ability to trust and repent. Faith, in fact, is Christ's gift to an unbelieving dead heart. Acts eleven eighteen. God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God gives it. It's granted. One of my favorite illustrations is a lady named Lydia. 
Acts 16, 14, Paul went to a little prayer meeting by a river with some women outside of the city of Philippi, and he was preaching the gospel. And it says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to understand the things spoken by Paul. So right, all the, all the ladies in the group, here's the, here are the radio stations. Zzz, stays on who Jesus is. The Lord opened her heart to understand. She's converted. The Lord opened her heart. If you've ever believed in Jesus, the Lord opened your heart. Don't you love this? Now, that might raise this question for you. What about the other people in the group? Nothing is said about them. Let's assume for the sake of the argument, the Lord didn't open their hearts. He might have, but Lydia is singled out. Let's assume for a second in this little prayer meeting, only Lydia is saved. Why weren't the others saved? I don't know. That's a mystery. Why did, you become, why did I become a Christian at age 19 and not 14? Why some of you at age 40 and not... I don't know. It's a mystery. What isn't a mystery is that Jesus Christ will save you right now if you call on his name. That's not a mystery. I hope I've made that clear. Jesus is saving sinners. He's calling you to himself right now. So let's suppose you go back in time to Philippi to this prayer meeting and you were there, and you watched Lydia get converted. And there's basically three possible responses to that. One, you can say, I don't believe this. Christianity's for sissies. It's for weak people. If you're really disparaging, you'd say, it's for women. I don't know. What should you do? Why don't you talk to a Lydia in your life? Go talk to her. What happened to you? What? Why do you believe this? How could I believe this? What's going on in your life? Talk to a Lydia. Talk to a Christian. We would love, I think most people in this room would love to speak to you about why the Lord opened our hearts and what that means to us and how that can happen to you too. That's one response. Another response is, uh, I'm not sure what's going on here. I'm not ready to commit, but I'm interested in exploring. Here's the promise. Explore. Ask. Seek that door will be open to you. And the other response is, I want what Lydia has. Lord, give me a new heart. Give me understanding. I want to be safe from my sin. I want to trust Christ. I want to be in the shelter of his love when the wrath of God finally comes. What's the promise? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So my point is, let invincible grace break into your understanding and to help you make sense of the difference between the dumb things Christians do that turn you off and the beauty of Jesus himself. Please look past the stupid things I do and say to the Jesus that loves me in spite of that. So let me summarize and we'll go to the last point. Summarize. God wants you to know the depths from which he rescued you and the depths he went to rescue you, Jesus. His sacrificial death on the cross. One last point. It'll go quickly. Invincible grace holds you on that bungee cord, that free fall. Because God will finish your salvation. Can I put it this way? He will be glorified as a God who saves a people for himself. He gets what he wants. <laughs> Nothing stands in his way. <laughs> What he chooses to save, he preserves, he keeps, because he loves them. 
or from the perspective of Jesus, his son, God the Father will be sure that the son receives the spoils of his sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection. The father will see to it that his son receives those spoils. And that is you who believe on his name. And this is what Peter means in verse 2 when he says, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now you've heard maybe a version of this phrase, foreknowledge in American Christianity, is saying, God, who stands outside of time, knows exactly what's going to happen in the history of time, and because he knows ahead of time that you, of your own free will, are going to choose Jesus, it's up to you. God's hands are tied, he's a gentleman. You, of your own free will, will choose Jesus. God simply knows ahead of time, or on the strength of that, he elects you. That's one version of this doctrine in America. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. All God sees ahead of time is you're dead in sin. He's got to make you alive. Foreknowledge is personal. Paul in Romans 8 says, those whom he foreknew. He foreknew you. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He just doesn't know facts. He knows you in a personal way to have you as his own. Jesus put it this way in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and nothing shall snatch them out of my hand. That's invincible grace. Paul said, I'm confident that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Christ. Or those fireworks of assurance at the end of Romans 8, I'm persuaded that neither heaven and earth, anything and all of creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I I put it this way? God is able to save a people for himself. That can't be frustrated. And this is the passage Marty read earlier from Ephesians 1. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And then into Ephesians 2, he raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. For what reason? That in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. God's ultimate and final delight for the sake of his son is to show the entire universe trophies of his grace. This is what the surpassing riches of the kindness of my grace can do with dead sinners. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. Forgive me if it makes me excited. couple practical effects of this. It speaks to so many of our human needs. This will be very quick. It answers your deepest longing. That is to be loved in spite of your faults. It answers your deepest fear. And that is to be abandoned by God because you don't measure up. No, he's not going to abandon you. You can laugh a little, smile a little, relax. You're the work of God. It it guarantees that your efforts in evangelism will be effective. 
God is the one that opened hearts. God ordains means as well as ends. The end of saving his people is the means we have of sharing the gospel with people. This guarantees it. God saves people. We don't do evangelism in vain. And it answers the sense in our heart of what is right, and that is no one will ever boast before God. There's no boasting before God. No one's going to stand before God and say, look at me, I made a good decision, I brought myself to Christ. No, all the glory is going to go to God. And it answers your deepest wonder. Your life really counts for something. You're a trophy of his grace. Clothed in the beauty of Christ. Serving as one, confident. God's going to finish this work. All right, invincible grace. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters. I know them. They are trophies of your grace. I see in them and hear in them their love for Jesus. It's a love you put in them. Thank you. It's a love they cherish. Thank you. And it's a love they long to see uh, shared among children, family, friends, others here. So keep us in that love. Keep us in awe of your invincible grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.